Welcome to the RSP Film and Dana. I'm Matt Waldman. Joining me, as always, is Adam Harstead. Adam, good to see you. Good to see you, too. Well, this week we've got a couple of topics on tap, and one of them is just the, the conversation that we'll kick it off with a conversation about tight ends and and really about... Um, you know what their how their position matters or what the value of their position is in the league as well as in in dynasty formats and then also really talk about just what dynasty rankings really are are at least in you know from what Adam has seen from the data of you know when we compare them to redraft production so you know, I, I saw I saw the thread that you had in our football guys kind of employee base camp talking about asking the question about tight end play, and and I'd love for you to kind of just kick that off and and summarize that for everyone, and we can kind of get into the meat of that um, just to begin the show. Yeah, so it started off um, is kicked off by the T.J. Hawkinson trade, um, and there was some discussion about was. Hawkinson, a disappointing pick. Was he a good pick? Was he a bad pick? Um, and um, someone said that, you know, TJ Hawkinson really reinforces that um, spending a, a high pick on a tight end doesn't really give you very good chances of them being good. Um, and I was kind of pushing back on that a little. And I think TJ Hawkinson is very good for a tight end. You know, I think he's been, you know, he's probably one of the top five or 10 tight ends in the NFL right now. Um, and you look at the history of high picks at the position, um, you know, the first round picks, there's uh, like even even the disappointing guys like Jermaine Gresham and Brandon Pettigrew, they had like eight, nine, 10 year careers. They're getting second and third contracts. Um, and then some of the guys who were, were disappointments relative to maybe especially fantasy expectations, guys like um, Tyler Eifert. OJ um, Howard. O.J. Howard, right. Yeah. They're, again, they're good players. They're above average players at the position. Teams that draft tight ends high, typically they don't bust. If, if you're spending a first-round pick on a tight end, it's almost certainly going to be an above-average tight end. Um, even somebody, like probably the worst tight end to go in the first round was Dustin Keller, who was, you know, he was a fine player. He would have had a longer career. He suffered a really catastrophic knee injury right after he signed with the Dolphins, and that kind of ended his career. But he wasn't, you know, like he wasn't bad. It's not like Jamarcus Russell, where he was just just clearly atrocious. He was, you know, he was kind of a guy. Wasn't worth the pick. I'm sure, you know, the Jets regretted it, but he wasn't bad. Um, and then if you look, too, at, like, the tight ends who did go on to become good they're predominantly guys from like the second and third round travis kelsey third rounder jimmy graham third rounder rob gronkowski second rounder um there's a couple exceptions george kittle was in the fifth tyler higby was the fourth um darren waller was the sixth but he was originally drafted as a wide receiver and then he had substance abuse problems and he kind of bounced around and he was a fifth year breakout and he's kind of an outlier in a lot of respects but there's a lot of evidence that if you want a good tight end, really the, the way to get it is to draft him high. First round, second round, third round. Um, there's a lot of evidence that tight end evaluations, evaluating who's going to be good coming from college to the pros, it's one of the, I don't want to say easy, but it's one of the easier positions to evaluate. You know, it, it, we have a better, we do a better job of telling who's going to make the transition well at tight end. The real problem is just that the position's not that valuable. Um, People look at Travis Kelsey and Mark Andrews, and these guys are massive force multipliers, but they are extraordinarily rare. And the reality is if you hit at tight end, the outcome usually looks something like TJ Hawkinson. You know, he's a good player. He helps whatever offense he's on. The teams are better for having him, but he's not going to, you know, single-handedly turn an offense from mediocre to great on his own. Um and so I think the problem is less that spending first round picks on tight ends doesn't get you good players. It's more that the positional value at tight end is is very low. It's it's and and the NFL knows this. If you look at franchise tag numbers, which are the average of the top five contracts at a position, I believe, 
Um, you know, franchise tag at quarterback is 29 million this year. Defensive end, wide receiver, um, linebacker, and cornerback are all 17 to 18 million. Linebacker here really means edge rusher because those are the guys who are setting the market. Defensive tackle, 17 million. Offensive line, 16 million. Like these are like the premium positions. And then you have safety, who's at 12.9 million a year. And running back is at 9.6 million. Tight end slots right down there. It's at 10.9 million. So according to the NFL, tight end is one of the most replaceable, least valuable positions in the league. It's down there with running back and safety. Um, And the real reason not to draft a tight end high, it's less that you're not likely to get a good tight end. And it's more that even if you do get a good tight end, it's just not that valuable of a position. It's the same reason why you don't want to draft running backs and safeties high. I want to take this from a different point of view because I I like I like what you have to say about this, um, but I I want to ask you this: when you think outside of fantasy football, just in in pure football sense, who was the quintessential tight end of the past fifteen twenty years? Who are some names that come to mind for you? Well, I'm a huge Gronk fan, and you know that obviously. Gronkowski is the example. Um, And I would say Rob Gronkowski is not the best tight end of the last 15 years. He's not just the best tight end of all time. He is. Um, I think there's a very strong case that Rob Gronkowski is one of the five, maybe the number one most valuable non-quarterback in NFL history. I mean, just in terms of what he he enabled you to do and just the impact he had on an offense. He's, I don't know if there's anybody who's on his level. And and I I knew you like Gronkowski, but I forgot how much you did because last night I was thinking about this and thinking, let me ask Adam what he thinks of this because I think it would be a good lead. And, and I'm glad I I it was logical that you would say Gronkowski. That's who I thought too. And I, and I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking he might be one of the five to ten best players ever in, in, in football and if you're – subtracting quarterback from the equation. And I think this leads to my point, which is maybe tight end isn't valuable, but the underlying reason that it isn't valuable is that when we think of what the quintessential tight end is supposed to do, no one can do it because, you know, you, it's not just, everyone says it's part wide receiver, part inline blocker but it's really part fullback part inline block part fullback part tackle and part slot receiver and part perimeter receiver and we've already established most everybody's established in the conversation that wide receiver is three or four different positions so to be the tight end that people expect a tight end to be is nearly impossible physically because you you have to have you have to have the mobility to work across the line of scrimmage and pull. You have to be have the vision as a lead blocker to to see if to see the holes and to, to see um, rushing lanes and, and potential block um, potential defenders who are going to fill those lanes like a running back the way the fullbacks see it. Then and then not to mention being pass assignment sound when you do have to pass protect um, and have to have that ability to, to understand blitzes and to understand fronts. But then now you've got to be, now you've got to be able to run routes in the middle of the field and identify zones um, and then beat people man to man and not just people, but you know, linebackers, the safeties and cornerbacks. And it's, and there, I just don't think, I think it's an, an, I think the position is impossible for, you know, or close to impossible in the way that we expect of it. So as a result of that, we don't pay, the NFL doesn't pay much for it because they don't get what they actually expect for it and no longer and very rarely expect that it to, expect it to happen. So when we get these, to me, the, the guys who are closest to Gronkowski in terms of being able to do all of those things in the league right now are, and it's a, it, they're a distant second, or, you know, if you want to say second, are TJ Hawkinson, Pat Fryermuth, um, and, and both of them have all, you know, Pat, 
Hawkinson's the closest. He just lacks. Um, he might be a little faster than Gronkowski, but he's not quite the blocker that Gronkowski is, and he's not quite the route runner Gronkowski. Well, and he doesn't the have outside. the ball skills. He doesn't have the ball skills Gronkowski has. Like yeah. Gronkowski had high level wide receiver, you know, like in terms of like catching passes way outside yeah. his frame, and like yeah, yeah it. Yeah. So so you can't. It, to, to, so I think that I, I agree that it just doesn't matter as much. It's not as valuable. But I think the underscoring reason is that it's an, that the expectation for what the position's supposed to do now is just unrealistic. You might as there's not really. I don't think there's really a position called tight end if we're going to define Rob Gronkowski as the quintessential tight end. And so scouting that position the way the NFL does it, it's so team specific that you have to, you know, you look at Kittle would probably also be up there, but see, here's the thing. This is the great point about it. Kittle, Kittle is probably much closer to Gronkowski. The problem is he can't stay healthy. Well, yeah, I was going to bring that up. I mean, I think that Kittle is probably the closest thing we have to a Gronk, and it's it's sample size of two. Yeah, I don't want to draw any sweeping conclusions, but it's yeah. interesting that both Gronk and Kittle have dealt with so many different injuries. You know, it's like even if the body was capable of doing what is being asked of it, it the body's not really built to handle like that wide of a range of. Ju you just need so many. Yes. You know, there's so much specialization. You need such specific physical skills to do one thing and such specific physical skills to do another. And a body that's built to handle one isn't really built to handle the other. And if your body is to handle both, it's like a really high precision race car where like when it works, it works really well. But just a tiny little thing off is going to blow the whole thing to hell. Yeah. And it's and then the mental demands to be able to like physically in order to physically process things on time to have the versatility to see the field that way and to and to know all these different techniques and concepts and then execute them physically on top of that it's it's the hardest non-quarterback position to play at the expectation that people have so and and then and it has i mean there's a reason it has such a steep learning curve too it's not people like look at tight end as like these dumb brutes they're these you know just smash into guys like 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 their fullbacks and yeah. fullbacks get a lot of denigrated unfairly as well but there's a reason why rookies suck so much at it yeah. because there's no other position where they're asking rookies to do so much yeah except maybe quarterback yeah i mean there's a joke i think it, i'm trying to remember who was the one who did it but i think it was cd carter who who talked about the whole um the the kind of things that each position would say and that how yeah, that tweets. wide receivers are sent yet yeah, wide receiver tweets are invariably the world is against me and i'm gonna overcome it and and tight ends the the word was derp you know yeah. and and i think part of that too you could joke that part of that is i got so much on my plate i don't have time to consider you, you know any entertaining or just time wasting types of stuff. I got too much going on here. My brain is fried trying to play my position. And that's why I think some of the better tight ends in fantasy have completely simplified roles. I mean, yeah. you know why Jimmy Graham was really just a wide receiver who, who wore a Halloween costume at the offensive line, you know, as an offensive lineman, or part of an offensive line. Or we look back and we keep hearing about this tight end revolution. I remember, I think we're both, we, we've been both around enough to, to vividly remember the touting of Jermichael Finley as the, as the um, kind of the guy who was going to usher in the era of the, the heightened value of tight ends. And that was another guy who either couldn't, um, couldn't play to his potential couldn't stay healthy, um, a combination of both. And it just, I, I think when we we go this route for for scouting these players, it is, it, it, you're going to have to, most like, more, more times than not, there's going to have to be something that's sacrificed, either the size to block, and that means he's got to be fit-based, whether he's just more of a slot receiver or or someone that can be, a big receiver because blocking and that's the other thing people say well yeah 
these guys can block, especially in scouting circles. And I look and go, well, yeah, but let's use Gronkowski as the template because if we're going to, that's the template that's in our minds. I mean, that every, I mean, Ditka was the same thing. There's a reason why Mike Ditka has held, held the record for so long for, um, most fantasy production right off the bat and then had, and then actually could be a blocker and why it's lasted so long. And I think part of it is that when you, when you look at blocking, most of the time, these guys are either blockers who could only get open under in an underneath zone, you know, five yards from the line of scrimmage. Um, and with a lot of scheming to do that, um, and or they are guys that you would and you could use them on the front side and maybe one on one against the defensive end long enough for a quick hitting play, but most of them are backside blockers who are double teaming with with a running back or a receiver or another tight end to get the job done. They're, and that's what made Gronkowski rare. What makes Kittle rare um, is that they're capable of doing that. And if you are capable of doing that, like say Hawkinson or Fryermuth, um, you need play action. Well, Hawkinson maybe doesn't need play action to get open up the seam, but you, you know, you, most of those guys are going to, it's helpful that they have that, or they're mostly running against zone to be able to get down the field like that. Goddard is Goddard's not the blocker either. So he's that guy that you, you kind of, he gets close to maybe those, those guys with you know with Kittle at the upper tier, with um, with ha with Hawkinson just below that, Fryermuth maybe just below that, and then maybe at the end of the spectrum is a guy like Goddard, um, you know, and of course we've got Kelsey in that equation too. But Kelsey Kelsey's a decent blocker, but you wouldn't, but he's more in that realm of like better than maybe what Kellen Winslow Senior was. Um, you know, but not quite as good as as a guy like Fryermuth or Hawkinson as a blocker. There's a um, Don Coriel had a great line, um, and so Kellen Winslow Senior. Bill Belichick says that like all of today's tight ends are descendants of Kellen Winslow Senior. He was the first guy where teams were like, "What if he was more receiver than blocker?" And Don Coriel had a great quote that like, "If I'm ever asking Kellen Winslow to throw a block, I'm not a very good coach." Yeah. Exactly. Just because that's, you know, that's not the relative advantage there. Why mm -hmm. put Tom Brady on your punt protection team? Yeah. Why? He he and Ozzie Newsome were that. I remember growing up being a huge Ozzie Newsome fan. And I mean, yeah, he was a wide receiver at Alabama. And I remember them drafting this wide receiver from Alabama. And I kept thinking, why are they, just as a little kid, wondering like, why are they moving him to tight end? I mean, isn't he's built like a wide receiver? How's that going to work? Like, and and when you watched them the way they used him, I mean, it was just more of it was just more of a we're not going to split them out. We're going to get the advantage there. Or a Todd or a Todd Christensen, if you remember him, he was mm -hmm. a. I mean, he was he was even an odd, greater oddity because he was really a fullback who who really wasn't much of a blocker. And he just got open within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. He was great with getting open against zones and maybe short man-to-man -man routes. And he was like the dump-off dump option deluxe for, for the Raiders for many years and often led, you know, tight ends in receiving. But So uh, yeah. Christensen and Winslow led the NFL in receptions like four times in seven years. There was like this one one time when like tight ends were like – it's funny. I love so I love NFL history, and it's real fun to like look at the the history and evolution of the passing game like through the lens of the tight end position, because um, it goes through really more than any other position, unless you count like wide receiver three as its own distinct position. Like really more than any other position, I think like tight end is the bellwether for trends in the passing game. That's interesting, you know, and it's it's a it's a fascinating. I don't know. It's I love the position, but it's a it it is it has to be so team specific to what a good tight end for them is, and often it means using them as two to three different types of tools. You have to have like two to three different types of tight ends 
on your roster in order to get what you need from your system. And, and I think that that's why if we're going to have to piecemeal the position, we're not going to pay it. And when and then when you do pay it, inevitably it can be disappointing because the demand on that player is just too great for what the role should be. And it's, I mean, the, the last guy that maybe really should have been Gronkowski, but... I hope you're going to say Vernon Davis here. I hope I was going to say Vernon Davis. Yeah. He, I think Vernon Davis certainly yep. was on that list. And and he's a better version. I was also thinking this guy because Vernon Davis at least had a career. Um, and boy, was he such a... An I athlete. love Vernon Davis. Yeah, me so too. I think he's so underrated by modern fans who are just looking at the receiving numbers. But I think he's probably the closest, other than maybe Kittle, I think he's probably the closest we've seen to yeah. Rob Gronkowski in the last 20 years. Yeah, I'll say this. The guy who could have been that but screwed it up his rookie year in a motorcycle accident was Kellen Winslow II. Yes, I agree with that as well. Yeah. yeah. He was so good. And even, I mean, like, even after the motorcycle accident, he was, he's very underrated. He, he had a much better career than people remember. Yeah, without a doubt. And and that's the that's the crazy thing is, like, that there were so many good players out of the University of Miami. And, and, and two of them that just come to mind that I think their careers, their careers really were altered by injury. And even still, they had fantastic careers were – were Frank Gore and um, and Kellen Winslow. If, and Edrin James. And Edrin James. Oh, without a third. doubt. Yes, my favorite. But uh but and that's and what's crazy about that is those three players could have been top five, like not just statistically, because Frank Gore's already up there now statistically. But they could have been I, I think of the movie The Natural for baseball where the Robert Redford's at least from the I don't remember. I've, I've read the book too, but I forget. Um, Roy Hobbs, what Roy Hobbs, the, the the baseball player, where they they portray it at least in Levinson's film version of it. I have to remember the book version of it, but you know that he could have been the best ever at what he did as a pitcher, and then got hurt and couldn't throw anymore, and then he he had this unbelievable shortened career. You know, one year career essentially, where it gives you the glimpse of what could have been. Like he could have been the one of the greatest game changing athletes in the history of any sport, really. And when I think of Frank Gore, I think about that. When I think of Edron James, I think about that. And the same's true with Kellen Winslow. Um, but it, but with but especially with Gore and James, just because of because of the glimpses of what we saw of them pre-injury, they they gore long enough in college um, that you could see it, and then I would say for James definitely in the NFL. I mean, he is he's the he's so much of a template of what I say the quintessential running back is. Like if you were to say this. What's your highest score? What could your highest score of a player look like? He would be one of those archetypes, without a doubt. Yeah. It's circling back to the original point about like yeah. not spending top 10 picks on tight ends. I do think it's funny that like two of the guys who are saying like could have been Gronkowski, uh, Vernon Davis and Kellen Winslow Jr., were both uh, top 10 picks. I mean, it's it gets back to that. I think it is maybe not the easiest position to scout, but I think it's probably the position with the highest scouting hit rate where like, you know what it takes to be a good tight end it, to the extent that there are good tight ends. Um, but in terms of like dynasty, when I see a guy go in the first round, they're pretty much like one of the safest bets in dynasty because draft capital at tight end, they rarely yeah. ever just completely bust. That's true. And I would say the only thing that, the only thing that's scary, like the, the, the one player that I look at from when I scouted and I thought this is a scary guy to rate so highly was OJ Howard. And the only reason though, from a, from just from a film studier's standpoint was he was, you could see in his habits off the field as a practicer. Um, and, and it manifested on the field that he was not a disciplined worker 
that he that he draw he made really bad focused detail type of errors on a regular basis and i remember seeing that on film and then watching him at the senior bowl where he just got yelled at and i rarely see players get yelled at in an exhibition like that it wasn't and it wasn't just that coaching staff where they were just yelling at people and trying to play that use that style of of um teaching coaching um it was they were just awful errors like get your head out of your ass type of type of things and when i and and for a position like this i you can't have a guy who's so um the things where he's really talented came easy to him but he he doesn't have the but the work ethic to expand or to sustain your game at a higher level isn't there if it's not there with tight end it's like quarterback you're you're toast because you're there there's just too much demanded of you at that point and i think that's where finley howard um you know kind of fit that 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 drew lock type of thing where like you can see the talent you just can see that they're they're not ready to to be. Um, I don't want to say the the professional version of that. I'll put it that way. So, um, so yeah. So let's 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 move on to the idea of dynasty rankings and and your point that dynasty rankings are really just ninety percent time delayed, age adjusted redraft production. Um, you know, let's del- delve into that for us. Yeah, so I think there's a, there's how people think that they rank players for Dynasty. And there's how people actually rank players for Dynasty. And people think that like when they're ranking players for Dynasty, what they're doing is they're evaluating the player's skill set and thinking about their fit and trying to estimate their situation. And they think they're diving into um, and, and making judgments about relative talent and whatnot. But if you observe dynasty rankings, consensus dynasty rankings, community rankings over time, basically it's just like how has a guy produced over the last three months adjusted for how old he is? You know, if you get a 24-year-old player who's producing as a top five player at his position, he's going to be top five in dynasty. And the the example I used of this from this offseason was Gabe Davis. Um Gabe Davis was, and, and you've, you've talked about Gabe Davis a lot. There's holes in his game. He's a limited player. He, he fills a very specific role in Buffalo's offense. That's a valuable role. It is. Um, Josh Allen is almost the perfect quarterback to take advantage of Gabe Davis's skill set. He's go, he, It was obvious that he was going to produce. Um, it was fairly obvious. It, we're wrong a lot. But that was one of those calls that everybody's sure. like, in this offense, Gabe Davis is going to eat. Gabe Davis isn't a great player. He's not like... In the long run, if something happens to Josh Allen, we don't know what's going to happen to him. If he gets a big second contract and goes somewhere else, we don't know what's going to happen to him. And so the result was that Gabe Davis was rated really high, relatively speaking, in in redraft rankings because everybody's looking at it and saying this is the offense for him. Gabe Davis is going to um, produce. And he was rated relatively low in dynasty rankings because everybody's saying Gabe Davis is a limited player. And both of these things are, are I think, smart and rational opinions. But I was saying in the offseason, I think this fundamentally misunderstands how these dynasty rankings actually happen. You can say Gabe Davis is going to produce in the short term, but he's not worth it in the long term. But the reality is, if Gabe Davis produces in the short term, he's going to see his dynasty ranking go up. <laughs> All of those great reasons you had for ranking him low yeah. in, the, in the first place, they're going to go out the window. Yeah. Whether he should, this is a question of ought versus is, whether he ought to, maybe not. But he will, I promise you. And so I, I tweeted, um, let's see, on May 20th, I tweeted, I, I averaged rankings across a variety of different sources. And I said, right now, Gabe Davis's average redraft rank is 29. His average dynasty rank is 42. And his age is 23. You know, one of these numbers is going to change going forward. And I'm 99% sure it's not his age. Um, and, and so I was revisiting that now, now that Gabe Davis has had a couple games. And the funny thing is, this is a classic he is who we thought he was situation. 
he's he's put up a lot of like dud games where he did absolutely nothing and he's put up like a, a lot of like just monster games where there's one or two broken coverages and he feasts for like a 12 point fantasy play um so he is who he thought he is right now his redraft to date rank he's 24th in points per game age i was right he's still just 23 i was i, I got that call right um, and he's risen in Dynasty from 42nd up to 28th, like exactly as we predicted he would. Once the points roll in, that Dynasty ranking is going to follow. Um, and so when I'm giving Dynasty advice, it it kind of depends on the type of Dynasty manager you are. And you and I are very different managers. You're more of a evaluate the fundamentals and then stick to that evaluation and hold. Um, I don't think you do that much trading. You're right. Um, whereas I'm I'm timing the market and when i see something like gabe davis i'm like whether this split is rational or not i know it's not going to persist so i can do something like buy gabe davis at wide receiver 42 prices benefit from that top 24 wide receiver production and then sell him at a profit at wide receiver 29 prices so not only do i get the points i also get the profit um so yeah this is this is how i really like to look at dynasty I mean, again, I'm not saying it's smart. It, I'm not saying it's rational. That that 42 ranking in the first place might have been the right ranking, but there's a lot of value to be had in just recognizing that that's how the Dynasty community feels today. It's not how that Dynasty community is going to feel tomorrow. It doesn't have the value discipline. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to be able to branch off into the idea of different style, different philosophies of, of being a GM. And you're absolutely right. We're the way you pegged me and the and then the, and then contrasting it with what you do for yourself is is pretty much it as a gm i'm i look and go who are the fundamentally sound players that i don't have to mess with and then what i and and I, at the same time it's helpful where that's helpful for my readers and people who subscribe to what i do is that they know that they're trying to play it for the long game with those players and and where i try to fill in the holes and say okay well i like this player he doesn't he has work to do or he's he's going to have op, he's going to have to work for an opportunity or wait for some luck to happen so these are the players that are going to be more um patience plays or players that you may want to um just monitor from afar as opposed to playing the market on them and then the people who are like you in terms of style who subscribe to my work tend to intuit that and go, okay, this is, this is where I can have some play to, to, to trade and to do different work with. Whereas for me, it's kind of a function of my style that's evolved now because of the work that I do as a fantasy GM. I'm kind of more like, listen, I'm going to play the waiver wire. I'm going to try and make sure that I have a, as high of a lineup hit rate as I do with my starting lineups. And I don't have time to mess with trades. Like I'm going to turn down probably, you know, 95 to 99% of the trades that come my way. And I'm only going to trade when I know that I'm close to having my team in, in a high level of contention and I'm just one or two players away. And then, and, and just build from that and sit on it and hope that my ability to pick a, pick values bear out and while for me that's worked reasonably well and in leagues where you're not i don't want to say they're not competitive leagues but in leagues where you're not playing with other fantasy um fantasy analysts you or or really have or guys who are heavy duty players who want to play with fantasy analysts because not all fantasy analysts are 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 great gms as we know so um you know those oftentimes you can i can be an advantage for people because i can I'll, I'll 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 be touting players that most people in leagues are playing in in espn or yahoo leagues where when they hear somebody pick someone in the third round that that they look and go i don't even know who that is or they're laughing i i get a lot of letters emails from people who go thank you for this guy because I remember picking him and they all laughed at me. And then like, then now they're, now they're writing me a check, you know, and they always bring up that we laughed at you about this player and we shouldn't have laughed at you. And I never tell them why, you know, those types of things. I get those a lot. So, but it's, but that's the style. And, and it's not as fun if you're like a, if you're an inveterate fantasy player, you, you want to trade, you know, you want to be able to, 
to to profit and see these part of that's the game for me i just eliminate that game because i just don't have time <laughs> and that's i mean really that's what i like about dynasty though it you know, I'm I'm not one to make normative statements. Play what you want, play yeah. how you want, right? If redraft's fun for you, play redraft. If you haven't given Dynasty a try, I would really recommend it because in redraft, there's one way to win. You yeah. got to get the guys who will score the most points right now, and there's there's really one path to doing that, and it's it's projecting players, and um, you know, everybody's competing on that same dimension. But the great thing about Dynasty is there's so many different ways. I mean, we're we're completely different players. Yes. You are trying to you're the you're the kind of person who's trying to rank Gabe Davis in the in the at forty second over the off season because you're un, you're evaluating the underlying um, metrics, right? Yeah. Whereas I'm the person who I'm like I don't care how good I, I don't right. care how good Gabe Davis is. I care what's the market going to be. I'm not predicting Gabe Davis's career. I'm predicting the, what the market how the market's going to react to everything. Yeah. Um, and you're successful your way. I'm successful my way. You can trade a lot. You can trade a little. You can, um, you know, I have a buddy who has, like, just, he gets the same, like, 12 players on all of his teams. Like, he's got players who are on 70% of his <laughs> dynasty teams. And it's he's got his guys. Yeah. He's going to get his guys. And he's good at identifying his guys, so he wins a lot. Whereas I, um, I mean, I go out of my way to make sure I have as little overlap as humanly possible between my teams so that if something goes wrong, like if one person gets a catastrophic injury, it's not going to sink all my teams at once. Um, and there's just so many different ways to play, and there's so many good ways to play. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where you can you can find your own strengths. You can find your own advantages and leverage those advantages and, and succeed with those advantages. You don't have to play the game that everybody else wants to play. You can play whatever game you want. And if you're good at it, you're going to, you're going to succeed. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure Adam that I'm, I'm pretty sure I could tell you that, that these players are on most of my dynasty teams. I, think. I bet you I can say Nick Chubb is Nick Chubb. One of them. He is. And yeah. I've had to trade for him. I could never draft him. Okay. Um, I've always had to trade for him. Um, Mahomes. Yep. I've been able yep. to get, draft him. Um, Lamar Jackson, yes, uh, and then Travis Kelsey, and then on the IDP side, um, C.J. Mosley, um, Kyle Duggar, um, this year at recently Chris Jones, um, and Dustin and Justin Matabuike tends to be on them a lot too. And then I would say, let me see if there's there's got to be a couple others that because I know I'm looking at one team that's tends to be representative and then i would say another one that's fairly representative is um chris godwin chris godwin is is often on my teams um and then russell wilson has often been on my teams and then from a an eric eric either eric kendricks matt judon or patrick queen are often on my teams as well i mean those are those are guys that I can say are at least on two to three of my dynasty teams. And then there's guys on my team that I never really thought would wind up on my team and they've worked out well, but like Rondale Moore is on my team a lot. And it's not necessarily because I think it was because I couldn't draft the players I wanted, Right. but I was like, okay, he's the next best thing that I can. He's the best thing I can get at this point. Um, so he's kind of more of a, I don't know if we call it a happy accident yet, but it's more of a, well, I'll take what I can get uh, situation That's, here. In my, in my rookie drafts, everything's happy accident. I never have targets going in. I mean, it just, again, it's fun contrasting my style with yours. I would bet yeah. if I had to bet, I'd guess 50 to 66% of the players on, on your team are guys you drafted. Yeah. Um, or guys who are on your watch list at the rookie draft and you, you added on waivers once they started to pop. Without a doubt. Um, I would I would guess like the average length of time somebody's on your team is probably something crazy like five years. <laughs> um, yeah, I have teams where like I'm I'm trying to think I have two teams right now, um, and other than the rookies I drafted this year because I haven't had a chance to get rid of them yet, um, I uh, I think the only guy I drafted on one of my teams might be Justin Herbert. Um, other than the rookies this year, and that I you know usually about. 10 to 15% of my roster is guys I actually drafted. Um, usually 90% of the guys on my team have been on for two years or fewer. Um, and I just, 
I mean, when I, I when I acquire a guy, I never acquire them with the intention of selling them later. Every deal I make, I'm thinking if if I have this guy for the rest of his career, I'm okay with that. Yeah, you know, based it just on the doesn't values work out today. That way. Yeah, but I'm you know I'm I have very I have I have values that are easy to trade off of, and so people know that, and so guys just don't tend to stick around very long. Um, it, it's funny. I don't think you and I probably couldn't be much more different as players yeah. but it really just goes to show that if you have an advantage and you know how to exploit that advantage you're going to succeed you're going to do well yeah just as a, a small example didn't we both win our, the football guys dynasty league in the leagues that we're in because i'm in the idp yep. league and you're in yep. the non-idp league yeah Wait, have you have you lost yet i'm still um eight and oh in the in the I, team defense dynasty i lost to matt batante who was also undefeated and um but i think i'm the scoring leader in that league right now so yeah th i lost yeah. once so so yeah it's funny how that goes but it's if we were if we if if our styles could transfer to expertise as NFL slash owners GMs who who kind of did it all. It would be funny because you would probably be more likely be touted as like the GM executive of the year because of all the moves that you would make. And I would be more likely be the guy that talk radio would want run out of town within the first two to three years and just be like, Oh my God, he's awful. He's, you know, we, they'd probably hang my image likeness and effigy in the stands and just be like, they want me out and they'd be miserable. And then like, and then in like four or five years, they'd all be eating their words. You know, it would be, that would be the, if, things worked out the way that they work out in our, in our fantasy leagues. And I just think it's, it's, it's kind of fun to compare and contrast that way for sure. Although I think in your, in your hypothetical, we'd probably wind up, um, our teams would probably wind up fairly similar just because I think we both recognize the importance of knowing where you have an area of advantage yeah. and knowing where you don't and like hiring badasses to cover your weaknesses and just like trusting them and not, micromanaging the hell out of them because we were, were on some sort of ego trip where we want every success to be our success yeah. um so i think you know i think if you ran an nfl team you'd probably hire someone like me to help you out if i oh, ran an nfl team i would definitely hire someone like you <laughs> oh i would I definitely mean, hire someone like you because i would absolutely and 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 i i would i'd laugh i'd hire someone like I, I someone like you or my i mean that's why i'm married to my wife because she's more like you in that sense of like her mind for negotiation, her mind for being able to value things in the moment and understand the game that's involved with that. Whereas I'm more of a, I am, I am much more of a simpleton in that regard where the idea of doing that, I'm far more conservative. I'm more risk oriented in the draft where I go, everybody values these players like this right now. And I look at that and go, well, I see it differently and, and, and go from there. But it's, it's funny because yeah, I, I, I look at these, I look at the, at this role and, and like there's today's a good example this week, Sigmund Bloom, Sigmund Bloom tried to offer a trade for me because he wanted AJ Dillon. He likes AJ Dillon is kind of, and I've had AJ Dillon since the draft and, and just going to hold on to him for a while. And he's my, I think he's my third running back on my roster right now, third or fourth. Um, I don't start him very often. And, and for someone like you, you'd probably be like, yeah, if I can get what I want out of it, I'm going to, I'm going to flip that, flip that deal. But I look at where I'm at right now and I know my weaknesses as a fantasy guy. And I could, I could probably use an upgrade at defensive end. So I had picked Dante Fowler up off of waivers. Who's been playing reasonably well as of late. And I have guys like, in Gawkway and Charles Harris, who's been heard and Matabuike, and they're all serviceable. My linebackers are, are my vast strength of my defense. And, you know, so defensive end, I don't go nuts over. Um, Sigmund tends to like getting the difference maker at defensive tackle, like defensive tackles, like his tight end, like he draft Rob Gronkowski and Travis Kelsey in the first round for him. It's like, it was in Dominican Sioux and now it's probably Aaron Donald, you know, and guys like that. And so he's offering me players and I just, I just 
pretty much on fact I got to get back to him. If you're listening, Sigmund, no, I'm not. I'm not. Trading. <laughs> I'm not. I didn't see anything that I wanted. And the and the real underlying reason about that is that I just know Sigmund's a better trader than I am. Yeah. You know. And so why am I gonna? Why am I even gonna take that risk? Like I've made some trades with Sigmund in the past, and I've had a couple that have worked out. But I've also had a couple where I go, why did I even do that? Like that was just not a good idea. And and it's. And it's funny because there's things I'm not risk adverse at or I understand. When I know that I need to trade and I'm ready to do it, I make good trades. But when people come to me and I'm I'm in the middle of wherever and I'm not having to determine where my need is or my team's set and I'm feeling a little bored and I'm thinking, maybe I should entertain that. I've learned over the years to go, fuck no, don't entertain that at all. Just just say, I'm happy with my team. I'm gonna hoard this stuff. Like I think I told, I used your line recently. I had somebody who's in a, in a different league who's been trying to trade with me since he got into the league this year and build his team. And he's done a great job of trading his way into being a winning team. And he keeps asking me for certain players and they're core players on my team. So, so I finally just gave him a list and I said, Patrick Mahomes, Nick Chubb, Travis Kelsey, Chris Godwin are retiring on my teams. If I have it my way, just, just so you know, I'm more than happy to listen to any offer that you make, but just know that if you, if you make these are pretty much non-starters, they're retiring on my teams and I'm happy with that, you know, but that's, you know, and and I think that 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 works well for for me. I think it works well for my brand of what I do and what people know me for, uh, because it's in a sense it's like, yeah, I evaluate I evaluate talent and I'm patient with that. It works for my style, so it's kind of good for it's kind of good for what I for what I do. But at the same time, you're right. If um if it was a real situation. Um, and we were in a workplace type of situation doing this, I would definitely hire someone like you um, who would be good at that so that we could have a balanced way of team building and exploit all the potential advantages that we that we could get. For the record, my goal in trading, I always try to lose 40% of my trades. Um, and I don't go in saying like, oh, I need to lose some trades on purpose. But I find if I'm losing less than 40% of my trades, that means two things. First of all, it means there's trades out there that are positive value and expectation that I'm not taking advantage of. There's, there's an untapped market I'm not in. And second of all, if I don't lose trades, then the next time I go to trade, somebody's going to be like, hey, you never lose your trades. You're probably trying to pull one over on me. Yeah. I think 40% is a, is a sweet enough spot where you're, you're accruing long-term value. You're not leaving a whole lot of meat left on the bone. You know, like you're you're taking the opportunities that are there, but also you're losing often enough that people can availability heuristic kicks in and people are like, oh, yeah, I remember you're the guy who gave me um, A.J. Green and Demarius Thomas for Maurice Jones through the year before he retired. Yeah, 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 I can I can. It's easy to remember examples of me losing. So people are not like too. you can totally beat me in trades. Lots of people beat me in trades. Yeah. It's just that on net. I yeah. More than lose yeah and and i think it's funny because that, that that also reinforces what people know of you if you're in a league where people know you and they know what you do when i enter a league in that situation nobody wants to trade with me um and and i'll offer trades early when i'm rebuilding i'll offer trades and, I'll, and i try to skew them i often skew them where i'm slightly overpaying because i want to establish the idea of of being more than fair to, to work with and easy to work with. And, and oftentimes people are just puckered tight. Like they do not, they, they are not ready for, to, to do anything like that. And it's usually because you, you're a fantasy writer or they know what my specific thing is. And they're just like, no, not doing it, not doing yeah, it at I'm, all. You're seeing something. This looks like a great deal, but you're seeing something I'm not seeing. <laughs> Again, that's why it's useful to have all these terrible trades. And you're like, hey, you think I'm some sort of savant? Like, yeah. look at all these. I keep a thread on Twitter of like, look at all of these idiotic things I have done. Yeah, you can beat me if you want to try your hand. You can absolutely beat me. I'm willing to bet I'm going to win more than I lose. But yeah, and then the typical response I get because I do try to be generous. If if you're if you ever play in a league with me and and it's early on and I'm rebuilding a team, no, you're going to get generous offers. I mean, because and the typical responses I've gotten are like, 
that's a great offer, but I, I'm just gonna, I, I'm just gonna have to turn it down. And you can tell they're just afraid because they, again, they yep. think I, I know something that they don't. And then they end up holding on to that player who they were gonna give up to me, who hasn't worked out, Trey Sermon, and and ha, and they're they're just withering away on their roster right now um, because of the. Um, because of the fact that he hasn't come through and I would have paid something that would have actually helped them. And they had a better team and it would have helped them, but they're, they're thinking, well, Matt really likes Trey Sermon. So let's, let's hold on to him. And yeah, maybe that might work out. And yeah, maybe I'm, you know, no, I'm not. I, I, yeah, I would have was willing to overpay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's a good point too. Uh, whenever you self scout, don't just look at the trades you made. Look at all the trades you didn't make too, and that'll give you a pretty good idea on whether you're you're trading enough or trading too much. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, this was a fantastic conversation. Um, as always, you know, we appreciate you, Adam, for for coming on the show on a weekly basis. And you can find Adam's work at Football Guys. You can find him on Twitter at Adam Harstead. And yeah, it, Adam gets it when it comes to Twitter. And so, if you like, if you like. You know, good conversation, friendly debate, thoughtful topics, um, someone who's transparent um, and someone also who's just kind and, and helpful and forthright. Then, you know, neither of us, no. Adam would be, <laughs> Adam is certainly someone that you would want to um, to follow. And then, of course, you can find me at Matt Waldman. Um, you can find my YouTube channel, Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room. Um, that's been around for I think well over a decade now. Um, we're I think we're knocking on the door to about 700 videos up there um, of of film study and and some podcasts and of course you can subscribe to this podcast and that has you know I'm running about five of them a week at this point, um, ranging from great topics like what we discuss together, Adam and I, to to Russ Landy and I, um, U.S. head of scouting at for the Montreal Alouettes and um, of course, Lori Fitzpatrick at us to us um, or not USA today wire TD wire. Um, Mark Schofield occasionally comes around. He and I do some work. And of course, Felix um, Sharp and I with, uh, um, you know, some Debbie dynasty talk about college players. And last but not least, feel it or fuck it with Bob Harris. Um, my, uh, you know, good friend of mine and, and good friend of yours and Hall of Famer. So uh, thanks again, and you guys have a terrific week.